Take your Bibles today, turn to Luke chapter 2, if you would. This morning, an unusual title. Um, I'm never, titles aren't my thing. You know, some independent Baptist preachers are really good about being real clever. I'm not. But the title this morning would be The Inverse Trajectory of Jesus Christ. And, of course, that does sound like me a little bit. Uh, a little nerdy, but um, if I could just ask this from the beginning, a different kind of message, it's not something that would probably elicit notes on your part. It's a sentiment, more of a devotional thought than it would be a scriptural study. But it was just something in my reading in the past couple of weeks that I've just thought about, and so I'm going to share that thought with you today. So we're going to begin with a very familiar story found in Luke chapter 2, so if you stand with me, we'll read from the first verse unto the seventh. And then I will guide you to one more text, and then we'll have a thought. But Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days, as there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made by Cyrenius, was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. And again, theologically, these words are all important. Um, this would make the provision, you know, for uh, the virgin birth. And she was being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now, verse 7, I, I really sort of belabored this last week, the humility of Christ. You know, the context in which he was brought into the world. I should say this, the context in which he chose to be brought into the world. And, and so there's just something striking to me about Christmas and its humility. And so this is where I think that the emphasis of verse 7 and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Much has been said about swaddling clothes, but there's so much in a typology here of Christ. The very field that Jesus was born in was uh, the folds in which the sacrificial lambs were often taken uh, to be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. And they would often take these newborn sheep and, of course, trying to keep them from blemish, would protect them in swaddling clothes. And here, you know, the ultimate lamb for our sins is wrapped in that. But beyond the, the, the symbolism here, there's just the humility. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, you know, a place where animals would have fed because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, last week, I asked you to consider with me Philippians chapter 2, which just an amazing text about the incarnation and how Jesus Christ had to let go of his place beside the Father so that he could come down and descend into the likeness of men. And not just any man, but to a doulos, a servant of God. And he became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. And we just, we sort of expanded the incredible humility, um, the lowliness that that took. And so, in both these accounts of the incarnation of Christ, we, we see this lowliness. But you and I know that's not where the story ends. And in Philippians chapter 8, that's where we ended. I'll start there. I just want you to listen. 
And being found in fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now listen to this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. We started lowly and we're ending with every knee here today bowing before the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee that has ever been born, everyone that will ever yet to be, every human being made in the likeness and image of God the Father will one day acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this day. Lord, we choose today to focus our attention on the Incarnation. And Lord, more than that, Lord, what Your life Meant, Lord, what it, what it initiated in terms of reconciliation with God. Lord, the salva salvation that it brings. And then, Lord, this, just the enduring nature, Lord, of your love and grace. Uh, Lord, 2,020 years later, here we stand, acknowledging this humble, lowly birth. Lord, I, I think there's something there for us, and I pray you'd help us find it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. <clears throat> On the day that Jesus was born, there was nothing in his circumstances that would have indicated that his life, this life, would change and mark the world. Nothing that would have prompted anyone to think, one day this child will be remembered. Nazareth was an obscure place, Judea in the desert. Bethlehem, tiny, really insignificant other than the prophetic nature that it was imbued with by the ancient prophets. He was born into human obscurity, a tiny little village actually outside the village in a shepherd's field, uh, a field that, were used, that was used to keep sheep. His parents were young, unknown, poor, most likely both of them teenagers. And Jesus was born under spurious, questionable circumstance, at least from the vantage point of the world. Um, Joseph really wanted to decline her as a candidate for a wife because she was with child. And yet, of course, he found inspiration outside the world to not do that. And yet, many could have assumed that things were not right nor noble here in this marriage. Society would have assumed scandal. They were good and honest people. And again, they were poor. However, they both had a, fam a famous lineage. Now, this would have been only famous in Israel. The rest of the world would have thought nothing of it. Both mom and father traced uh, their lineage back to a famous king who lived a long, long time ago. Joseph and Mary held no earthly title. Um, they had no earthly wealth. Most likely everything they had was on that donkey that Mary sat upon. As their parents and their grandparents before them, they were born they lived, and they died, and no one 
from the human perspective, probably really noticed. Their lives were as a grain of salt. Um, they're just one among many, maybe as a sand upon the sea. They're just an infinite uh, or a rather finite speck of dust on the seashore. Like leaves in the wind blowing, they were here and then they were gone. Little noticed and of no recognizable consequence from the human realm was the birth of Christ or his family. On the day that Jesus died, it looked as if whatever small mark he left in the world would have and should have rapidly disappeared. The friends and family he did have were scattered. Many had forsaken him and they were in hiding. There was only a handful of them. During his life, Jesus never held any formal title or position. There was one bestowed upon him, teacher, but that would have been it. He wasn't involved in politics. He never served the military. Jesus accumulated no earthly possessions and or wealth. He had no land, no titles, no meaningful assets, save his family. I suppose it's fair to assume the only thing Jesus ever owned were the clothes on his own back. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. The word could be mason. Whatever the case, either with wood or stone, he worked with his hands. And no doubt they were strong as he chiseled into masonry and wood. And I, I'm sure he provided for himself through those skills. But he never worked for the accumulation of things. Usually if someone, if anyone, leaves a legacy, that legacy is probably going to be apparent if not in their life, certainly at their death. But Jesus left no will, no lands, no tangible items. Before he died, he did ask a favorite friend to care for his mother. And he did. He was murdered by the Romans in the most contemptible way. It was a way that was reserved for the worst of men. There was an ancient proverb among many peoples that cursed is everyone or anyone who hangs on a tree. It was a, an inference of the cross. You see, a cross was used for thieves and robbers, killers, traitors, for the, the most heinous of mankind. Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was then buried in a borrowed man's tomb. He was abandoned at that moment by all of his friends. A few people who loved him cared enough um, to face the potential consequences of Rome and care for his body and, and lay him in a tomb. It was a very small group of people, mostly ladies. The few friends he did manage to make in life, they all had abandoned him. So let me repeat, there were no earthly indicators that his name would have been remembered beyond the lifespans of those who knew him when he was alive. Does that make sense? No monuments were erected. He wrote no books, no poetry, no art. He was not an inventor. He led no uprising. 
If anything, he would have been known as some as a small level for his infamy. He was an he uh, he was hated by his own kind, the Jews. He was seen by the Romans as an enemy of the state. To this day, no one has ever known what Jesus Christ looks like. We don't even know. Obscurity. He was never married. He had no children. His life ended with his mother in tears to a jeering crowd favoring a criminal over him. The Romans mocked him. The Jews hated him. And a very small band of followers forsook him. Humanly speaking, it seems any chance of Jesus making a difference or being remembered in this world was like the sliver of a thread. But I love conjunctions. <laughs> but, however, over 2,000 years later, separated by 6,800 miles from where Jesus lived, speaking a different language in a different culture, with tens of billions of lives lived between his life and ours, against mathematically incalculable odds on, some, on Sunday, December 10th in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Over 900 people have assembled in this place to remember the, the birth, the life, the death, and I say resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are one of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of assemblies doing the same thing this morning. We are here worshiping a, copper, a carpenter's son who gave us hope that we could be reconciled to God. And he provided for that hope by what he did on the cross. Jesus' legacy endured. His three and a half years of contribution, it seems now, have been immortalized and eternally remembered. Since Jesus' disappearance, we have another word for that. His impact on human history has been unparalleled. Right. Normally when someone dies, their impact, their influence begins to recede. And hence my title, The Inverse Trajectory of Jesus Christ. He did not begin to recede. He began to increase. Jesus inverted this normal trajectory. At his death, there were no more, no more 20 people who cared anything about Jesus Christ. At his resurrection, however, there were 500. His impact and influence was greater 100 years after his death than during his life. It grew even greater after 500 years. After a millennia, 1,000 years, his legacy laid the foundations of the Western world and all of Europe reaching into the Americas. 2,000 years after his brief life, his ministry of three and a half years, he has billions of followers on every corner of the globe and an incalculably greater number that have trusted in him since his resurrection. His influence has swept over human history like the tail of a comet. 
Jesus' life and teachings have been the singular source of countless pieces of art, of all true science, in government and in medicine, in culture, in civility, in education. He, Jesus, changed the way human beings think. For the 4,000 years before him, there was never any man like him. A man who had a heart of compassion, of love and grace and kindness, and yet spoke with incredible authority. He gave the world dignity and love and grace, caring and compassion. He changed the world by changing people, not corporately, but individually. He changed the world by changing a heart. Everyone may not know Jesus today, but nearly every human on earth knows his name. Yeshua. Jesus. With a little study, the Savior. Great historical figures have tried to secure and immortalize their lives by building great monuments and cities. Alexander the Great, how many cities go by Alexandria today? Caesarea for Caesar. San Francisco for St. Francis. But really that was born out of a respect for Christ. Today, a few people would make the connection, minus a sermon like this, between Alexandria, Caesarea, and their namesakes. Some men tried to be remembered by changing time, literally changing the calendar. The Romans did this. Uh, at the height of Napoleon's reign in France, they tried to change the calendar. More recently, the former USSR, Soviet Union, made an attempt to change the human calendar. Those attempts were all gone and forgotten. Yet today, we still measure human history into two categories. A.D., after death, and B.C., before Christ. <laughs> Some sought greatness by their conquest and cruelty, by crushing cities, tribes, and nations, and peoples. But Jesus chose rather to be crushed. The communist once formed what was known as the League of the Militant Godless. Can you imagine? Whose goal and aim was to end the influence of Jesus Christ. But these leaders soon learned that Christianity was like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Amen. Jesus and his followers Occupy today the greatest places of prominence in the world in terms of art. Go to Europe and look at the art and you will find, you understand the idea of Jesus there. Countless songs have been written about him. The writing of books about him, there is no end. I would have hundreds, if not a thousand books in my library about the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, people pray. In Jesus' name, bad people curse. 
People in desperation cry out to Christ. Grateful people mention his name in gratitude. From birth to funeral, in sickness and in blessing. This man just won't go away. From antiquity to the dark ages, to the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, it was the name of Jesus that brought people back out of darkness. Jesus, the person, the name is eternal, no matter what has happened, <clears throat> and they will not go away. <clears throat> Yale historian, a man named Pelican, wrote, <clears throat> and I quote, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up and out all the, out of history, every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, he asked the question, would there be anything left in Western civilization? <clears throat> Since Jesus, the world has changed. Before Jesus, children, and there was, a, there was a name that humanity had for them, and it was basically they were nothing. They were meaningless. <clears throat> Those who didn't want a child could just abandon them, just leave them. It was called exposure. No one thought much about it. But when Jesus came, he loved the children. And even in Jesus' day, when the disciples saw children coming to him, they were beneath that, they thought. And Jesus said, let those little kids come to me. He dignified them. He gave their life meaning. And today, all we hold dear in the preservation of life from conception, from conception, even with all manner of difficulty and abnormality, children once forsaken are loved by people today. Jesus did that. Women once regarded as property of a lower dignity, Jesus, through the way he treated them, declared them equal and objects that should be cherished and loved and taken care of. Slaves who had no rights, well, Jesus gave them the right of equality. The world's worthless were made worthy of God's love through Jesus. Christ granted equality and value. He taught us that love was important to cherish and protect. The defenseless was what human beings, at least his followers, should do. Again, when the dark ages came and mankind was hurtling backwards a thousand years, it was Jesus and his teachings that saved the day. His followers created libraries and orphanages. They started schools and churches. And he led the world back to the light. Jesus was never a general, yet he commands the largest army this earth has ever seen. 
many men have turned back in difficulty, but most of the followers of Christ would march to death for their Savior. Nearly 7,000 miles away and 1,800 years later from this year on this time as earth, Jesus impacted our daily lives. I'm talking about specifically here in America by His truth, His teaching, His example, His life, because He inspired these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Everything that is good and virtuous about America comes from Him. Not just in terms of grit, the gift of grace, but legacy and heritage and a way of life. The way we live, we take for granted that it was a gift from Christ. Before Christ, this world was cruel and hostile without love. Power was the ultimate virtue. Humanity was considered, humility was considered the weakness. But Jesus taught every life was worth loving. It was good to treat people with dignity and respect. Jesus challenged the notion and practice that brutality and strength were virtues. Instead, he taught kindness and patience, humility, forgiveness. These were the ultimate signs of greatness. The ancient world hated their enemies, and Jesus suggested that we should love them. When Jesus taught, <laughs> most were offended, some were delighted. Everyone was astounded. They were amazed. Never before has a man spoken like this. Because Jesus brought something in great peril today. He brought the truth. Truth about you, truth about me, truth about who we are, truth about identity, our likeness, about our greatest need as sinful beings, and the only solution for our poverty of spirit was in Him, in Christ, His provision. Jesus brought the absolute, unarguable, equivalent truth wrapped in love, which is important and different too. Throughout history, this is, this is discouraging. Throughout history, men have rejected Him. Men, great and small, have ignored him. They tried to bury his truth, marginalize it, burn it. They tried to hate it. But Jesus and his truth have endured. And, and just grant me a little attitude and think with me. But perhaps most amazingly of all, Jesus has survived his followers. Perhaps more than the endless myriads of the enemies of the cross of Christ, it may be Jesus' followers that have posed the greatest threat to his enduring nature. 
Over the ages, men have co-opted Jesus' name for their nefarious purposes. Slavery was justified in the name of Christ. Unbiblical patriarchy justified a thousand, tens of thousands of abuses. The Crusades murdered tens of thousands, millions in the name of Christ. The Inquisition, witch hunts, the ever prevalent resistance to true science. the hate that one nation has towards another nation. In World War I, every side thought they were acting on the benefit of Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy is a really gross thing, isn't it? It's an evil so persuasive. The best of us are hypocrites. Yet Jesus and his true grace and love and mercy, thank God, have endured. They shine in and through us despite us. His name, his history, his truth, his love have survived despite who we are. It is because of who we are in some ways his name endures because we so desperately need a solution for our problem. So when I think about this, and I'm working to a final point, the miracle of Christmas, and there would be many, the incarnation, the way Jesus brought bloodlines together, um, deity wrapped in flesh, the miracle of Christmas, the incarnation, the portal from earth to heaven, heaven to earth, the bridge allowing for our reconciliation, are miracles. You know, religious systems have come and gone. Many invented, more have died. Despite multiplication, unnecessary division, ugly infighting and persecutions within and without. This is the miracle. Today, we are still here celebrating the birth of Christ 2,020 something years later. That feels very miraculous to me when it started on the sliver of a thread. We follow one whose parents were poor peasants. We declare fealty and faith to a man who is a transient. We worship someone that the world despises. H.G. Wells, the historian, said, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this P 
penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. He said, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history, but I won't let him dominate my heart. Another famous historian, I won't do brutality to his name, said, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life that has been ever lived on this planet. This morning I found this reading a history of Napoleon. It's what Napoleon said. At the end of his life, the exiled imperial Napoleon had a conversation with one of his generals about the deity of Christ. General Bertrand said, I cannot conceive, sir, how a great man like you can believe in the supreme being ever exhibited himself to men under a human form, with a body, a face, a mouth, and eyes. Let Jesus be whatever you please, the highest intelligence, the purest heart, the most profound legislator, in all respects, the most singular being who has ever existed. And Napoleon said, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions, but with Christ that semblance does not exist. There's between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. From the first day to the last, he is the same, majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them. Because giving no other reason than those tremendous words, I am God. When we think about Jesus and his impact on the world, all this culminates for me with this question in my mind and heart. If Jesus, his truth, his life, his example, hath transformed the world for 2,000 years, How much have I allowed him to transform me? What have I allowed him to do in my heart? If his love and compassion inspired great literature and art, if hospitals and orphanages and churches have been built in his name. Where is his monument in my life? If Jesus is who he claimed, God 
murdered on the cross, but resurrected. And if he is coming again to set up a kingdom that will last a thousand years and on into eternity, will I be able to say, I followed you? Truly, I followed you. How can we live with so, so much ambivalence to one like this? And I'm going to suggest we shouldn't. <laughs>